I think there's a, an incredible timeliness uh, to this series that we're in now called Bible Study, where we're exploring what the Bible is and how it works and, and how we read it. It, it, especially given the obsession that our culture seems to have with the Bible right now. I mean, just think about uh, across movies and television, the, the, the Bible miniseries and the AD miniseries, which spawned the Son of God movie and the Exodus movie. And I'm, I'm led to understand that there are six or seven more Christian themed movies that are scheduled to be released this year and, and next year and so on. It's just an incredible thing. But of course, the big story from last year, March of 2014, was the release of the movie Noah, which received uh, rather mixed reviews from the Christian community, especially the evangelical community that we're a part of. People um, didn't love the movie by and large. Uh, in fact, uh, the evangelical publication Christianity Today published an enormous review, seven-page review on the movie, and it was effectively titled Five Things That Are Wrong With the Movie Noah. And uh, people didn't like the way Noah was portrayed. People didn't like the way some details were changed or fudged or added in the telling of the story of Noah. People didn't like the way the the fallen angels or the Nephilim or the watchers, you'd have to watch the movie to understand. They didn't like the way that was all handled. Um, people didn't like the environmentalist message of the movie, which kind of confuses me because God created the world and he made it good and he put us in charge and somehow environmentalism is opposite of the Christian message, but I don't, I don't get that. But but the, one of the big things that people did not like about the movie was one scene in particular where Noah has his family in the ark. He's sitting with them in the boat and he decides to tell them the story of creation. And uh, in the article in Christianity Today, it said they, the, that author figured that scene was going to be upsetting to a good number of evangelical Christians and uh, you'll understand why when you see the scene. Just a minute. Check, check this movie out. Well, I think it's pretty obvious. If you grew up in the church or if you pay at all uh, any attention to media, whether uh, mass media or social media, um, if you are aware at all of the conversation that the church seems to continually have with the issue of evolution... Um, I think you can understand why Christianity Today thought that the director, Aronofsky, that his portrayal of the creation story, overlaying the telling of the Genesis story in Genesis chapter 1, the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, with the visualization of Darwinian evolution might be troubling to some people. Because it seems that this issue um, just doesn't go away in the public con conversation about faith and science. In fact, I would almost go so far as to say this is the public conversation about faith and science, about science and scripture. Largely because of how people like us in the evangelical church have thought about scripture throughout our history. We have considered, and rightly so, we've considered scripture to be God's book, 100%. And that's true. We as a church affirm that. The scripture is God's book. It's not going anywhere soon. This is where for thousands of years people have met and come to know and come to love the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ. This is 
it's in the pages of this book that God has revealed himself and has, has met people right where they are, has breathed his spiritual life and his thoughts into our spirits. As I said last week, performed spiritual CPR on us so we would spring to life as human beings able to become what God created us to be and to do what God has created us to do. This is God's book. This is God's divine breath being breathed into our lives and and our church has affirmed that always throughout its history. As I said last week, that has led churches like ours to draw certain conclusions about the nature of the Bible, that since the Bible is God's book 100%, that that means that it ought to have certain characteristics that are consistent with who God is. For example, because God knows everything and because God always tells the truth, then everything we find in this book ought to be factually accurate and true in every single way. Which is why, with that assumption in place in my life, as it's been for many years, it's why it's been uh, challenging and stretching for me in the last couple of years to begin to rethink whether or not I believe that's actually true when it comes to the science that we find in the pages of Scripture. Um, the issue of science and Scripture. See, what I proposed last week, if you were here for the introduction to this series, and I should just make this clear, what I proposed last week is that while we ought to continue to think about the Bible as God's book, 100% divine, I have begun to wonder whether we shouldn't also begin to consider the scriptures to be a human book, 100% human, in exactly the way that Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, was 100% God in a way that didn't take away from his humanity, but 100% human in a way that didn't take away from his divinity. And I wonder, since the early centuries of the church, people have proposed that scripture, the written word of God, ought to be thought about in exactly the same way that we think about the living word of God, Jesus, as 100% divine and 100% human. Excuse me, being the place where God breathes his life and his thoughts, but also being a place that is profoundly human, that God does that through the writings of human authors who are allowed to put their humanity on full display, including in the conversation about faith and science. Because when you think about the Bible as only a divine book, when it comes to the issue of science and scripture, that's when uh, the battle lines get drawn. They were, they were drawn, um, I mean, this issue of faith and science goes all the way back to Copernicus and Galileo saying to the church, I, I, I don't care, in effect, what your Bible says about whether the, the earth is fixed and the sun revolves around the earth. I have a telescope that says it actually works the other way around. Um, but this issue of faith and science for the evangelical church took off, I think, in earnest in 1925 in the state of Tennessee, where at the time it was illegal to teach evolution in the classroom to school stu- to students. But there was a man by the name of John Thomas Scopes who was accused by the state of Tennessee of doing exactly that, of teaching Darwinian evolution to school children. And they brought uh, John Scopes to a trial and hired a high-priced, nationally recognized attorney named William Jennings Bryan, who was a committed evangelical Christian. He had run for president three times. Everybody knew who William Jennings 
Bryant was. And he was brought in specifically to prosecute this case on behalf of the state of Tennessee. Well, the ACLU found out about it, and they hired their own high-priced lawyer, a man by the name of Clarence Darrow, who was also a nationally recognized figure, who up until that point in his career had never lost a court case. And the whole conversation, the whole case turned... On May 7th, 1925, the defining day for the conversation between faith and science in the evangelical world, when Clarence Darrow decided in a bold and daring unprecedented move to actually put the prosecuting attorney on the stand and to grill him with questions. And the questions that Darrow asked William Jennings Bryan, who he put on the stand, had nothing to do with John Thomas Scopes and had everything to do with Bryant's literal understanding of Genesis chapter 1. That God created the earth in seven literal 24-hour periods beginning at 9 a.m. on October 23rd, 4004 BCE, which was the common evangelical understanding at the time. He began to grill Bryant on his literalist reading of Genesis chapter one and he made William Jennings Bryant look like an idiot. And the whole court case turned at that moment and the whole tide of cultural opinion when it comes to faith v. science turned in that moment. The battle lines were drawn and the war's been waged ever since. And it's being waged fiercely. In fact, a recent poll says that 60% of evangelical Christians believe Darwinian evolution to be incompatible with the story of creation in the Bible. 80% if you get down into the more Bible Belt states. Um, This is a battle being waged. It's being waged in the media where on the church side, there are whole organizations that exist for the sole purpose of demonstrating that a literal reading of Genesis chapter one is a scientifically viable way to think about the origin of the universe. And way on the other side, you have individuals and organizations driven by atheists that exist for the sole purpose of demonstrating that a literal reading of Genesis chapter one is an inviable scientific way to think about the origin of the universe. And both sides believe that the viability and legitimacy of the Christian faith hang in the balance of being able to prove or disprove whether or not Genesis chapter 1 should be read literally as an account of the creation, a scientific account of the creation of the universe. And in between, you have other organizations all across the spectrum who are trying to demonstrate that a more nuanced reading of Genesis chapter 1 can be compatible with evolutionary science and so on. And that's what Aronofsky does in the film Noah. He reads the text and he shows you evolution occurring. And in a sense, what he's saying is, see, they are compatible with each other, depending on how you read Genesis 1. The tragedy in all of this is that the casualties in this war between faith and science is the faith of individuals. Polls demonstrate that millennial Christians are leaving the faith more quickly than ever. And one of the primary reasons they are is because they've come to believe that modern Christianity is incompatible with modern science. Unbelievers, polls say, will not even consider putting their faith in Jesus Christ precisely because they believe the Christian faith is incompatible with modern science. And in my opinion... I think it's tragic and unnecessary that that's true. 
because we've put a burden on the scriptures to bear the weight of scientific accuracy that the scriptures were never intended to bear. The scriptures were written, I believe, by ancient human beings through whom God was breathing truth, but they were recording that truth through the filter of their ancient worldview and their ancient mindset. And that's become more and more apparent over the last 150 years as archaeologists have discovered from um, a number of cultures surrounding ancient Israel, other creation stories and other flood stories, by the way, that demonstrate remarkable consistency with the story of creation and the story of the flood that's found in the book of Genesis in the Bible. Consider a a document called the Enuma Elish, which is uh, often called the Babylonian Genesis. The words Enuma Elish are the first words that appear in the story. They just mean when on high. It's how the story begins. But the Enuma Elish tells the creation story in a way that is remarkably consistent structurally and in some of its features, remarkably consistent with the Genesis telling of the story, even though the Enuma Elish is centuries, if not a thousand years older than the Genesis story. In the Enuma Elish, before creation, there is nothing but darkness, just like in Genesis. And then a supreme God begins the process of creating and he creates by engaging in a sequence of days, just like in Genesis, where on each specific day something new is created and the, and the sequence of creation is almost exactly the same as Genesis. You even have some of the oddities of the Genesis creation story uh, found also in the Enuma Elish where light is created before the sun, where the waters above are separated from the waters below. Some of the more challenging elements to understand scientifically found in the Enuma Elish just like they're found in the Genesis version of creation. Now the stories are remarkably different in some ways too. The supreme God in the Enuma Elish is a God named Marduk who discovers that his his great-great-grandmother, the goddess Tiamat, is plotting with her husband Apsu to destroy all of the gods, including Marduk. It's like this incredibly dysfunctional divine family because all the gods are their children. And Marduk and his son Ea decide that they're just not going to allow this to happen. And so they go to war against Tiamat and they kill her which I suppose is a predictable outcome. If I was to fight my great-great-grandma, I'm not a violent person, but I think I could take on my great-great-grandmother. It it doesn't seem like a fair fight to me. But anyway, they defeat Tiamat and they kill her. And Marduk fillets her carcass from top to bottom and he takes half of her carcass and with it he creates the heavens and then he takes the other half of her carcass and with it he creates the earth. Now in the process of the battle, All of the lower gods were destroyed. And so now Marduk, who is the supreme god by virtue of his victory over Tiamat, which means darkness and chaos and evil, um, by virtue of his victory over his great-great-grandmother, he's now the supreme god, but he's got no one to rule over. And so he creates human beings in order to be the slaves of Marduk, whose responsibility primarily is to feed him with the sacrifices they bring to the temple. That's the Babylonian account of creation. Obviously, in some ways, very different than the biblical account. And yet, here's the thing. 
It is obvious when you read them side by side, and the flood story is all the more so. It's obvious when you read them side by side that they are the same kind of story. That neither one of the stories purports to be an, an accurate scientific accounting of the mechanism of the creation of the origin of the universe. Both the stories exist to philosophically answer some questions like, who are we? And how did we get here? And what is the nature of reality? And whom do we worship? And what does it mean to worship this God? And, and what is our purpose in the world? In the Babylonian Genesis, the answers are uh, that we are human beings created to be slaves of the God Marduk. We are created out of the remains of the evil goddess Tiamat. And so somehow evil is built into our structure, but we are also the result of the creation of the good God Marduk. And so there's goodness somehow built into who we are as well. And our role is to serve the great God Marduk. Um, and, and to acknowledge that at the core reality of the universe is violence. That all that exists happens because of an act of violence that took place among the gods. The answer is that Genesis provides very different. It says, who are we? We are created in the image of God. To live in relationship with the only divine being exists, who exists, who is so powerful and so sovereign over everything that he is able to speak creation into existence the core reality of the universe is a divine act of loving communication where God speaks order into the chaos and light into the darkness and creates us to live in a relationship with him a relationship of love and a relationship of love with each other and a relationship of love with creation so that we become God's co partners in reflecting his goodness, beauty, and truth of his love into the world. Those are very different answers to the fundamental questions of reality. And that's the point. That's the why ancient people told these stories. It wasn't to explore the science of origins. It was to philosophically explain who we are, where we come from, what God is like, and what it means to live in a relationship with him. And in that way, the Genesis account is exactly the same in its kind as all the other creation stories of the ancient world. It's a good thing, too, that they... The authors were writing for philosophical reasons, not scientific reasons, because the writers of the Old Testament, like the writers of all the cultures around, uh, had a very ancient view of science. In fact, over the last 150 years, uh, archaeologists have discovered that there was a shared view of the universe that was common among all the cultures of that part of the world. I want to put a picture up on the screen that one author has used to try and capture this picture of reality, of what the universe looked like, of how the universe is structured. You can see right in the middle of the picture, if your eyes are good enough, you can see a little man standing on what is uh, apparently the earth in this conception of reality. And there are pictures like this picture, seriously, in ancient literature, ancient renderings of exactly this kind of picture. Where this little man who is 
representative of humanity in general who's trying to figure out the way the world works without the tools of modern science or the scientific method described by Francis Bacon who are doing their best to make observations about life and draw conclusions about how the world works. And here's this guy who draws the conclusion that because everywhere he wanders, the world seems to be relatively flat with some undulation to it and so on, that the world must be in general flat. Except there's one place where you can go where the world is not flat, and that's to the sea. If you begin to walk into the sea, you suddenly discover that you are walking beneath the earth. And the conclusion, who knows how deep these waters go, they don't have the ability to measure that. Um, the, the, The conclusion that the ancient people draw is that this is, whenever you come across a river or a lake or, you know, a pond or the Mediterranean Sea or whatever, this is a place where the waters beneath the earth have come to the surface. That there is a subterranean lake that they referred to as the waters below. Now the question is, if the earth is a flat disk that is sitting on top of the waters below, why does the earth not feel like it's floating? If I get into a water and into a boat on the water, you know, I can feel that I'm resting on water. Why doesn't the earth feel like it's floating? And, and the very reasonable answer that the ancient people give is that the earth is resting on some solid foundations. In fact, it says in Psalm 104, it says that God set the earth on its foundations and it can never be moved. The reason the earth doesn't move is because it's sitting on its foundations. Well, how is it sitting on foundations if it's sitting also on top of the waters below? Well, Job chapter 9 tells you what every ancient culture thought. It's that the earth is sitting on pillars that are resting on the foundations. In Job 9, it says God shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. And so here's our picture of the earth. It is a flat disk that is sitting on top of the waters beneath, but it is solid because it is resting on pillars that are rooted in the foundations of the world. Now, the thing about water, ancient people were confused a little bit by water because not only is there water below us, but from time to time, water comes down from above us. So there must be not just waters below, but waters above in In Psalm 148, it says, praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the skies. There's got to be waters above the sky, because sometimes it falls down. But how can there be water above the sky? Well, the sky, the ancient people decided, must be solid. It must be a solid surface, a a, a roof like a, a dome. And so Job says, in Job 37, can you join God in spreading out the skies Hard as a mirror of cast bronze. Ancient people in every culture believed that the sky was a hard shell that sat above the earth, held up by this pillar of the heavens, which was the mountains, on top of which sat the waters above, where sometimes rain came down. Now the question is, how does rain come down if the sky is solid and the waters above it? Well, there must be windows or floodgates in the sky for the water to come through. Malachi 3 says, God says, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it all. Of course, he means the rain comes down and fertilizes the crops, and now we have an abundant harvest that takes us through. The floodgates of heaven open and water falls. 
from the sky. Now, of course, water is not the only thing that falls from the sky. Sometimes hail falls and snow and lightning bolts. And so there must be other stuff stored up above the sky rather than just water. And Job 38 fills us in on that. He says, if you entered the storehouses of snow or seen the storehouses of hail, that up above the sky, this hard surface, God doesn't just store water. He stores hail and snow. And sometimes he opens the floodgates and throws that stuff down on the earth as well. My point is, this is how the ancient people put together their understanding of the universe, their ancient cosmology, it's called. They made observations and said, this is, must be how it is. And the interesting thing to me is that I don't find anybody in our modern culture arguing that we ought to be teaching the storehouse theory of meteorology in the schools. Right? Nobody's saying, well, we know that modern science has developed these theories about how weather works, but those are just designed to undermine faith. We know that in actuality, God sits in his throne above the heavens and opens the windows of the sky, which is hard as bronze, and allows the snow to fall. We know that's really how weather works, and we should be teaching that to our school children. No, when it comes to that kind of stuff, we're perfectly comfortable saying, listen, they just had an ancient understanding of weather. That's what they thought at the time, but we know better now. And I don't understand why we can't allow that same kind of reality to exist in the world of creation and evolution in Genesis chapter 1. Why not just admit that while the Bible's a divine book, it is also a human book written by ancient authors who had ancient perspectives, who had an ancient view of science and an ancient understanding of the way the world book and, and the world works. And that's what they recorded because that's all that they knew. And somebody will say, well, then how can that be God speaking? Uh, because God would never reveal faulty science. And I just don't believe that's true. I think that's a low view of God that says that God always has to speak truthfully about matters like science and so on. Now, I'll show you what I mean. Um, in Isaiah chapter 55, this is what God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, uh, sorry, I just totally lost my place. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God says, you can't deduce how I would do something in your puny brain because you don't see things the way I see things, which ought to be a cautionary tale to those of us who assume that since God breathed out the scriptures, it has to work this way, right? And I take that caution for myself. God's ways are not our ways. We have an incomprehensible God, right? Think about the universe itself. Some scientists say that the universe in diameter is about 95 sextillion kilometers across. Which means that if you were to get into a spaceship and travel at the speed of light, it would take 156 billion years for you to travel from one end of the universe to another. There are a trillion galaxies in our universe. Each one has billions of stars. All of those stars are light years apart. And, and the universe is expanding all the time. It is an incomprehensible reality. In fact, a neuroscience 
Baptist that I am aware of, who is not a person of faith at all, has said that the project of, of science, of understanding the universe, is like building a pier across the Atlantic Ocean. And every year, scientists go to the end of the pier, and they bang in a couple more boards to get us a couple feet further. But the distance left to travel is incomprehensible, and the mystery that remains is immense. And we will never understand the universe. And what the Bible tells us is that behind this incomprehensible universe is an incomprehensible God who is so powerful and sovereign that he can just speak the word and this incomprehensible universe comes into existence. However that happened. This is a God that we will never understand. This is a God who could not speak to humanity in scientific accuracy because we would never understand what he says. I mean, ask yourself this question. See, we always, when we say scientifically accurate, what we mean is according to what we understand today, which a thousand years from now, people will look back and say, what rudimentary backward science the ancients believed, right? They thought light was both a wave and a particle, and now we know that's all nonsense, right? What we mean is God speaks in the ways that we think today, which is a ridiculous thing because God has incomprehensibly more knowledge about how the universe works scientifically than we do. And if God were to try and explain to us how it really works, our only response could be, huh? We'd never understand. And so God speaks to us in terms that we can understand. And he does it by speaking to ancient people in terms that they could understand. And it doesn't make God a liar, and it doesn't make God an idiot, and it doesn't mean that God is steering us astray. I mean, let me just say it this way. I have currently uh, four kids who will be nine, eight, seven, and five. And by the word currently, I don't expect there to be more. There are going to be nine, eight, seven, and five this year. And as far as any of the four of them is concerned, when a baby is uh, carried inside of a mother, it is being carried inside her tummy. That's what my kids understand. Because I told them that. And I didn't tell them that because I'm a liar. And I didn't tell them that because I'm evil. And I didn't tell them that because I'm ignorant. I told them that because that maxed out their capacity to understand. That was within the realm of their comprehensibility. And it maxed out their capacity to understand. And I was simply not interested in explaining to my four kids at this moment in time the rest of the reproductive system. And one day when my kids get older, they'll look back and say, I used to believe that babies were carried around in mommy's tummy, and now I know that that's false. But they won't call me a liar, and they won't say that I'm evil, and they won't say that I led them astray. They will say, thank you for loving us enough to speak to us in terms that we could understand so that we could live in relationship with each other rather than just speaking over our heads in a way that would make us lost. This is John Calvin the reformer from 500 years ago, wrote this, and this is my paraphrase of Calvin, but it says, for what dimwit does not understand that as nurses commonly do with infants, God habitually lisps in speaking to us. Because of this, God's speech does not so much express clearly what God is like as much as it adjusts our knowledge of God to fit into our tiny intellectual capacity to do this. He must descend far beneath his loftiness. God sacrifices his reputation to speak to us in baby talk. 
through ancient people who had ancient purposes for writing and who had ancient understandings of how the world works. And to me, that does not compromise the integrity of scripture. It speaks of a God who loves us enough to initiate a relationship with us even though we could not understand the tiniest thing about him. He found a way to communicate to us. And what he communicated is a story about who we are and about the world that we live in. And the biggest tragedy to me in all of the hype that this battle between science and scripture gets in the church and outside the church and culture is what's lost in the process, which is the story that God wanted to tell. The story of an incomprehensible God for no reason that I can understand who decided to create a universe to speak life into death, to speak light into darkness, to speak order into chaos, to create a world that reflected his goodness and truth and the beauty of his love. A God who created us as human beings in his image to be like him, to live in a relationship with God, a relationship of love. We're not his slaves, we're his children and his co-laborers, we are to live in a relationship of love with God, with ourselves, with each other, and with creation, that we might become mirrors that reflect the goodness, truth, and beauty of God's love into the world. It's a story that reminds us that when we choose to wander away from God's purpose for us, that's when things get broken. That the universe is broken because we've broken it. That's what sin is. But that the invitation remains for us to turn back to God in repentance. And to be joined to him in relationship. And to partner with him in his project of filling his creation with the goodness, truth, and beauty of his love. In partnership with the children that he loves with all of his being. Is that not a more beautiful, true, good, and compelling story than whether or not the early chapters of Genesis are scientifically true? Because that's the story that God is inviting us into. And as the band comes back to the stage, I wonder what part of the story you need to hear. There are some in all of our locations this morning who have lost sight of the goodness and truth and beauty of the love of the only God that there is. That the world is the result of a God who loves you and who is nothing but good and true and beautiful and who is inviting you to live in a relationship with him. And you need to hear God reveal himself as that good, loving, true, beautiful God in your life again. There are some who through shame and guilt have lost sight of how beautiful you are. That you aren't some scum worthless, forgotten, has been that God should want to have nothing to do with. You are created in his image because he wants to love you and have you love him back. He wants you to love yourself and to realize that you are a prince or a princess who is the child of a king and designed to govern this world with him. You are beautiful and noble and royal and regal. And the Bible says just 
lower than the gods. There are some who are living a story of sin where you have wandered away from who God wants you to be. And you are at a moment in the story where you need to hear God say that that, that destruction that you're experiencing in your life is the result of your self-destructive behavior. If it hasn't started yet, it will. It's destroying you. It's destroying your relationships. It's destroying your relationship with God. It's destroying your relationship with the people you love. It's destroying your relationship with the world that God has placed you in and God is dying for you to come home. There are some who are living in a part of the story where you just need to hear God say, come with me, I have a purpose for you. I'm inviting you into a life where you in relationship with me are tasked with the duty of reflecting my, the goodness and beauty and truthfulness of my love into the world to bring healing to this to creation in order to be a part of reconciling everything back to God's vision for the way the world was always supposed to be. I pray that as we return time and time again to the earliest chapters of Genesis and the other places in Scripture that talk about creation, that we keep our ears open for God's story rather than choosing to pick a fight about science and the Scriptures. Let's pray together. Father, would you guide us back into the story that you're telling about our world, about who you are, about who we are, and about what our purpose is and about what it looks like to live in a relationship with you. And I pray that at the very least, in our community, that would be the conversation that dominates both among us and through social media and our friendship circles in the surrounding world, that we wouldn't be the kind of community that fights about faith and science. We'd be the kind of community that invites people into the story of your love, which you told through those thousands of years ago who were faithful enough to share it with us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.